was just telling Peggy Hayes and Martha when we were coming in that a long time ago I chose as my patron saint, Thomas. I think it's because I started out as a science major. That was my first love. And I can identify with his need to physically verify things before accepting them. We all view events with our very own and very personal lenses. As a result, when we read or hear a story like the one in today's gospel, our reactions and our understandings are shaped by our individual experiences and background. So I hope you'll forgive me if I relate some of my own story and spiritual journey in the homily today because I do take this gospel very seriously. I suspect that there's enough of the doubting Thomas in all of us that I pray that you can relate, at least in part, to what I have to share. Now looking out, I can see that for most of you, your, the spiritual journey has not been nearly as long as, as mine has been. I grew up in a preacher's family, Methodist preacher. And I was, I learned to be not very happy about that situation. It was great until I got to school and the first grade was the first time some of the other kids began teasing me, calling me goody two-shoes and sissy and PK. And I was discerned to show them that I was as bad as any other kid, if not worse. And I got into a number of fights, physical and verbal. And my parents were great, very loving and supportive. But my behavior was a problem for them. They were summoned for frequent visits to the principal's office for conferences. So I grew up kind of conflicted about religious things. Now the spiritual things were the comfortable norm in our family. We had brief worship and prayer as daily occurrences, and I was enveloped in the warmth and security of that experience. Still, by the time I was in upper grade school, I hurt along with the rest of my family. When my dad's feelings were hurt, when somebody in the congregation said something negative. And I can remember vividly in the fifth grade when our closest friends, the ones we went fishing with, and the church rebelled against my dad because he had baptized the Mexican janitor and invited him to join our church. The conventional wisdom of that place was Mexicans were Roman Catholics. My dad was just absolutely shocked, devastated at their prejudice and deeply hurt by their hate-filled reaction. And as a result, we moved away from that really nice community that summer. I think perhaps it was a natural reaction then for me to be somewhat skeptical 
worried of people's actual motives, at least some of them, for coming to church. Now they say that PKs very often become terrible black heretics, and that was certainly the case for me. I became an atheist. Strange part of that was I became an atheist going to seminary. My dad's Methodist bishop and district superintendent were convinced that I had been called into the ministry. I was actually ordained as a local local preacher in the Methodist Church at a very young age. I was having this trouble deciding after I was no longer a science major what I was going to do. So my parents and the bishop thought I was being called into the ministry. I wasn't sure. I thought maybe it was the baker's son syndrome. Because my dad was a Methodist preacher, my grandfather was a Methodist preacher, my great grandfather was a Methodist preacher. And my uncles and cousins were not preachers in the Methodist church, but they were preachers in various denominations. So it was kind of like modern-day Levites. I did enroll in seminary, and I was interested in trying to gain an understanding about the nature of God. I had been a philosopher. And it seemed to me that in theological training, however, when I got started, that I was defining God and making God subject to my understanding that likely had roots in an ego problem, which I still have to have. Ten centuries ago, Anselm said, theology is faith seeking understanding. My error was to reverse that. I fell into the trap of trying to understand God in order to develop faith. However, in that process of reasoning, I was the one defining God and subjecting God to what I could understand and then who is really in charge. Wasn't I really creating God in my own mind and my own image? I said, big ego problem. Atheism offered me an avenue of escape from the Baker's son syndrome and the near poverty of my father's vocation. Atheism also offered me a path to normality and being in control. A chance to be of the world. A chance to pursue a career to earn money like normal people did. So that is what I did for over 30 years. Now my faithlessness is where any parallel between Thomas's doubt and my own doubt can breaks down just completely. Although Thomas has been referred to as Doubting Thomas, he was always faithful and committed to Christ. Scripture reveals that he alone among the disciples 
seemed to be aware of the danger that lay in front of them as they journeyed that last time to Jerusalem. Still, he faithfully followed Jesus, despite the danger that he knew that he faced there. He was not a skeptic as much as he was a realist. In fact, he had a great deal of resolve and courage. He was not afraid to leave like the other disciples. who were huddled in that room in fear of the Jewish leaders behind heavy locked doors. That's the reason in today's gospel reading they had to tell Thomas, who had been absent about their seeing a risen Christ. Now, I think it would be hard for a realist who had witnessed his tragic, horrible death to believe that it was possible for Jesus to be alive. The really good news in today's gospel, for those of us who have been non-believers, is Jesus' reaction to Thomas's skepticism. It's very comforting for us. Jesus did not rebuke Thomas. Instead, he reached out and he took his hand so that he could touch and feel the hole that his wounds had left in his side. The other good news in today's readings is that the risen Lord still comes to us in the community of his followers even today, not just in the first century. By God's grace, I was led to experience the risen Christ's presence in a group of believers. It was a spirit-filled Christian community as described in our reading from Acts. And it played a primary role in the transformation from doubter to believer. That occurred after nearly... Actually, it was more than 20 years of being an atheist, of which the last six years of that atheism period I spent as a regular active church-attending atheist. And even then, I, even at that time, I thought it was important for kids to go to Sunday school and to get a good social and, and moral company. But now I can see in retrospect that Christ, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, had never turned his back on me and was still positioning me to come back. In most of my career, I was being very successful. But I was beginning to develop a feeling that there must be more to life than success. I felt what's been described as a, as a quiet desperation, an emptiness. Even though everything was going as planned and I was successful, that was true in my family as well, there was still a slight sense of unease. I'd been promoted, and as a result, we had moved from the church we first attended, which was St. Luke's in North Little Rock. Barb had not been a church person when we married. And we were living in Fairfax, Virginia, and after we first moved there, 
we had gone to the closest Episcopal church. It was a beautiful church. It was very, very old. And some buildings were built actually in colonial times. However, it was the most unfriendly church that I have ever experienced. So we attended another friendly neighborhood church uh, a little farther away. But our next door neighbor was an Anglican. He was an Englishman, Episcopal. And he was the kindest, most helpful neighbor that I have ever heard. For example, when we were working out on the yard in the heat in the summer in Virginia, he'd come out to help. And he'd come with a frosted mug of cold beer for you to drink. Just absolutely wonderful person. But he kept pestering me to come with him to a small Bible study that met each week in the guest house of one of the most powerful and prominent men in Fairfax County. That was Tom Pritchard, who was head of the Democratic Party. Uh, his son, Ed, Ed, was a priest here in this diocese at, at Trinity. We finally relented and we went with him. Now, it was a good wine-drinking Bible study of parishioners of that big colonial church that we had earlier rejected. And there were about 16 in the group, which comprised primarily young married junior leaders and their husbands. They were very friendly and loving Episcopalians. However, with a much more fundamentalistic and evangelical bent, than I was comfortable with. It made me very cautious. But Barbara, who'd been a junior leader in North Little Rock, loved them and instantly felt at home. Barbara's very outgoing, and she, for the first time in Virginia, really felt like she belonged. I was completely turned off when the young attorney had consumed a little bit too much wine got in my face and asked me if I loved Jesus. <laughs> Barb wanted to go back, but I, and I was afraid to leave her alone with these very nice fundamentals. We did finally agree with our neighbor next door to go to worship service at that church that had been the coldest one that I'd ever been to. And we were absolutely shocked to see people holding up their hands they were swaying to contemporary music. And instead of being uncomfortable uh, with the exchange of peace, the first time we went to this church, I turned around and kissed Barbara at the exchange of peace. I turned to her later, and you know, I thought she was going to faint. <laughs> but they were very uncomfortable. It was a very staged kind of church. But now everybody was getting up in the aisles, hugging each other, Kissing strangers, you know it, which made me just as uncomfortable. Maybe I was more staid than I thought. It was amazing, though, the transformation that had happened in that congregation in just a few months. It was unbelievable. Barb loved it and joined Brian in, but I was very, very apprehensive. Now, Barb had agreed to do youth work, and as usual, I followed her what she was doing. 
We started out with the normal, sparsely attended uh, afternoon picnics. Every once in a while, we'd have a dance on Saturday night, and a few kids would come to that, but they wanted a live band. But shortly after we began as youth workers, in the large sanctuary, there was a communion service called the House of Bread, where some kids even spoke in tongues, and the group looked like they were hippies, long hair, not sure they bathed frequently. They were Jesus people. But gradually, our group of uh, kind of straight kids joined in. And the attendance of that Sunday night service uh, grew to the point that there were over 500 people coming. And even in that large church, they simply overflowed and they had to have, they had to have uh, speakers so people could listen. Now, I grew more and more apprehensive during this process as Barbara became happy. Now, because of my background, I've always felt close to clergy. And particularly, I like the young curate who is responsible for the youth work. Steve had planned a retreat uh, at a mountaintop retreat center for the people from the House of Bread. And at the last minute, all the other adult leaders, which I considered rank fundamentalists, had backed out on him, and he asked if I would help him out, and I agreed. And unfortunately, I was feeling very holier than that, because all the fanatic believers had let the clergy down, as I was used to with my dad. And I'd also taken adolescent psychology in graduate school, and I was not looking forward to being an ecclesiastical babysitter for a bunch of hormone-driven, rebellious, long-haired, hippie-like teenagers, the Jesus people. What I found instead of troubled kids, that I expected would be sneaking off in the, in the bushes to perform some untoward act. We're a great bunch of loving, beautiful young people when you got through the service. Rather than doing all the things I anticipated, they simply went off and read the Bible during the period of silence, which is what the retreat started with. And at dinner that night, we were still silent. But if a bowl would get empty, some kid would get up, go over, fill the bowl, come back, bring it without any prompting from the adults. Something I could tell that was very powerful was at work. Transforming their behavior from what you would expect of a normal adolescent. Finally, when we broke silence the next day, we studied and discussed our baptismal vows, what it was we were giving up, and what it was we received in return. Now, I wanted to feel the peace and the joy that I was seeing in these young people.
So I find myself on my knees praying for that to come as a young priest and kids lay hands on me. And I experience an actual physical warmth throughout my body. It must have been akin to the experience that John Wesley talks about at all of you. Where he declared that when my heart became strangely warm, whatever, I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And finally, I believed that there was a God. Jesus said to the doubting disciple, Put your finger here and see my hand. Reach out your hands and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. The doubter believed. Jesus said and said that those who do not doubt and who do not have to see signs are much more blessed, and I believe much happier and satisfied on their journey. But for those of us who do need something, the risen Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is still visible to us in the body of his believers. Look around you. As we gather each Sunday, he is still being made known to us in the breaking of the bread. In the presence of his spirit within this community that is gathered. In the words of Eucharistic prayer C, pray, open our eyes to see your hand at the work in the world about us. And Jesus tells us, do not doubt, but believe. Amen. Thank you.